All right, we are going to look tonight at the book of Haggai. Uh, I was just saying that we have this much to go through, and then we'll be finished with the Old Testament, but it's still going to take us probably about a month. Um, So we are going through the book of Haggai tonight, and I would dare say, like we've said a few times this last few weeks, uh, we probably haven't heard a whole lot of sermons from the book of Haggai. It's two little chapters. Uh, Haggai was a prophet that preached after the decree of Cyrus for the children of Israel to go back home before the temple was completed. So probably around the year 520 BC, so about 500 years before Jesus was born, the Jews that had returned to Judea after the exile in Babylon um, had gone back They had reset the foundations uh, and then gotten about life. They had, just like happens to all of us, life had occurred. They were building their own homes. They were trying to get resettled themselves. They were um, having some issues with, with marrying people who were in the land. And God's temple had been forgotten. And so Haggai's emphasis is on the restoration of God's house and the the rebuilding of the temple. And so it starts out in the second year of Darius the king. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoazad, the high priest. And so We have now the governor of Judea, not the king of Judea. He's appointed by Cyrus, but he is in the line of David. He's also in the the line of Jesus. But uh, Zerubbabel is there in Israel. So we start out um, with, just like all the prophets that we've read, uh, there's a blessing and a curse, a weal and a woe, a correction that needs to be made. And he starts out correcting the children of Israel in chapter 1, and he tells them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And so he shows them and points out to them this in verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag filled with holes. I love this so that we can have little with God and be full. And when we're living our lives outside of Him, when we're not doing the things that He's called us to do, what's described here, I've experienced in my own life. It's like I, I sow, I work, I, I, I get my paycheck, but it seems like I'm always running behind in my bills. It seems like I'm never happy, I'm never satisfied, I never am warm or full. It's like there's always something missing. If I can just get that next thing, then I'll be okay. And that next thing, you get it, and you're just like, huh, that's it? That's all? I, that's what I was thinking about? And so Haggai is telling them, 
You live in a house that's fancy and nice, but my house is unbuilt. Now, if we weren't careful, we would think this is all about the house. But we read in Acts, quoting from the Old Testament, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me, says the Lord? God doesn't need us. What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So God telling them, you need to get to work on my house, has nothing to do with God needing someplace to live. When I grew up, and I've been honest with the church the whole time that I've been here, I would say that the thing that I have the hardest time preaching and teaching on is giving, personally. And that's because for most of my life, I've seen it done poorly. I've seen preachers who every Sunday acted like the church was going to close the doors if you didn't hawk your wedding ring and give $300. And begging constantly, acting as if God is some poor guy who needs us. Because I grew up with that and that bad theology, I always feel weird and awkward when I talk about money. But here we see in the book of Haggai, the point is being made by the prophet that when we focus on giving to God, not just money, but also our time, our energy, we're the one who benefits from that. That when we hoard, when we set up for ourselves, we undermine our own happiness. And it's that way in every area of life. When I'm doing marriage counseling, when Ann and I meet with a couple, and I, we've joked about how, and, but it really does happen fairly frequently where a couple will come to us and say, we're getting a divorce unless you can fix this. And so we will sit down with them. And it will become really clear really fast that that man is doing everything in his power to make himself happy and that woman is doing everything in her power to make herself happy. And they are fighting for their own way in every aspect of the marriage. And I will tell you, that is the quickest and surest way to destroy a marriage. Because if you're fighting for what you want, if you get it, you lose. I always tell men in our very first session, in my experience in counseling hundreds of people, that what men really want in their life, what, you, what would make you happy is peace in your home, food, and sex. That those things are what you really want. And if you get your way about the curtains or whatever it is you're fighting about, you're not getting any of those things. You're not going to have peace in your home. You're, and on and on. You've undermined what you actually want. It's self-defeating for you to fight for your own way. Same thing with the wife. What the wife wants is intimacy. She wants that heart-to-heart connection. She wants to feel like her husband cherishes her. She's not going to get that if what she does is fight for her way. And so the way to build a marriage, the way to be truly happy in a marriage, 
is that I do everything in my power to make sure that she is happy. I'm sacrificial in, in whatever I do to make sure that my wife gets her way and is happy. I die to what I want to do. And then she does the same thing so that we're stepping on top of each other to make the other person happy and to meet the other person's needs, then our marriage flourishes. Jesus said, the way to find your life is to die to yourself. Except a man take up his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. The way for you to be happy in your own life, I can tell you this from a biblical perspective, that when Jesus said, except a man take up his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me, the idea of the cross had zero religious significance. Nobody in the first century wore a cross necklace. That would have been unheard of and unthought of. It would be the equivalent of me walking around wearing an electric chair around my neck or a, a, a noose. It meant death. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to die to what you want and what you think will make you happy. I can tell you that in my 50 years, that the most miserable I've ever found myself is when I'm fighting for my way, when I'm trying to get what I want. And the happiest I ever find myself is when I'm living my life for other people. We've talked about how there is no one thing that I personally dislike doing more than going to a nursing home. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It Inside, I feel like this is where I'm headed. This is the end of my life. I don't like the smells. I don't like that in 65% of the nursing homes here, they're unclean. They, somebody, will, somebody will have an accident. Somebody comes along, mops that up, and they use that same mop water throughout the whole building, and so the whole building smells like urine and feces. And then they try to cover that up with that, the heavy industrial cleaning smell, and it's just overpowering when you walk in the door. You've got that. You've got people. You'll be walking down the hall, and you'll hear the person here moaning. You'll hear somebody over, over here crying out for a loved one who died 20 years ago. I just don't like to be... Nobody in their right mind likes to be in there. My experience has been when I go to the nursing home, whether it's Coosa Valley down the road here, whether it's McGuffey's, when I go to the nursing home and I spend three or four hours with some of our members, some of our, our folks who've gone there, or, or oftentimes it's just people will stop you as you walk down the hall. Hey, will you pray for me, preacher? That I always leave there walking on clouds. That those people in that place give me way more than I get, give. I, I've shared with the church, there's a lady, um, her and her husband, I think we're faithful members at, I want to say down here at Lewis Street. She has had a stroke, and the language center in her mind was destroyed. And all she can say is the word shoe. And I've walked in her room, and William, you've been with us a hundred times. And she'll say, shoo, 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 shoo. And yet, I can feel the love coming off of that woman. And we will pray with her, and she'll bow her head, and she'll pray along with us, saying, shoo, 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 shoo. And I walk out of that room 
feeling like I've just had an encounter with God. That doesn't make any sense. I, I dread when we're going to the nursing home. I think about it. I literally will dream about it the night before. It's not someplace I want to go. It's not someplace I want to be. And yet I always leave there going, thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity. Why is that? Because I died to what I wanted to do. And in giving and dying to myself, I find my own joy and happiness. And so God is telling his people through Haggai, stop building your own houses and get to work on my house, not because he needs a house. God doesn't need a building made by hand. He owns everything that is. The earth is his footstool. He's telling his people this because he knows they need to give. That they need to stop focusing on themselves and focus on him. Now, as the prophecy and as the preaching of Haggai moves forward, they start working on it. And the disappointment that they feel under Zerubbabel as this little bitty house compared to the old house becomes apparent. Some of the old men who are there remember the beauty of Solomon's temple. The big two oxen that sat out in front made of bronze with, with the basin that sat on their backs. And the overwhelming beauty of the pomegranates up in the galleries and just how overwhelmingly worshipful that place was. And they saw this pathetic place that they were building, comparatively speaking. I mean, God tells them to go out to the woods and get wood. And they, so they're sad. And they want to stop. And so Haggai says... Who is left among you who saw this? I'm in chapter 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Zodak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So, when we start following after the Lord, oftentimes our little steps feel really little, don't they? I remember there was a trend in the 80s and 90s, where churches would bring in guest speakers. And it almost seemed like there was this contest to see if we could find somebody who had done the most evil, wicked stuff. That was, you know, Randy Hogue, all those guys, they would come through and they would talk about all the drugs they did and all the prostitutes that they hired and all the evil things that they did. And they, it would be this, this thing of, and then I went forward and got saved, and now I don't desire any of that stuff. And I remember being 14 or 15 years old, getting saved and baptized like five times because I was a Christian and I still wanted to do bad things. My experience wasn't that God just took away all the desire to do bad things. I still had to struggle with it and fight with it. I'm not denying that in Randy Hogue's case that he was glorious saved. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, is that when we first get saved, often it feels like little bitty steps. Little bitty steps that are just, I'm still struggling with in this area, or I, 
If somebody makes me mad and I fall off the handle and I act this way or I do this thing, it doesn't feel like this big, huge, and then everything was perfect, right? It's like all the fairy tales that end with, and then they lived happily, happily ever after. And you're looking at the story going, yeah, that didn't happen. If she was asleep in the woods for 200 years and he just came along and smooched her, they are not going to live happily ever after because now they got to get to know each other. So I think, God, this is not, I, I want something big. I don't want these little bitty steps. And what we see here that Haggai is saying is trust in what God's doing, not in your end results. We have got to believe as Christians that our victory comes in obedience, not in the result. I remember being a missionary in a Muslim context where nobody got saved. The average time from a person first hearing the gospel in Muslim context to the time that they got saved, the average was 13 years. I had friends that I went through the International Learning Center training with who had gone to China. And at the end of three years, they're on the third and fourth generation where they had planted a church and that church had matured in the Lord and gone and planted a church. And the third generation of their churches were starting after three years. And I hadn't even led anybody to the Lord yet. I'm still doing zero to one. And it would be easy under those circumstances to feel like a failure. To feel like, well, God, clearly you don't love me as much as you love them. And what Haggai is telling the people, children of Israel is, is that your victory is in obedience. It's a beautiful thing to God that you did what he said to do. God was not weak when Noah preached for a hundred plus years and nobody repented. That didn't mean that God was weak. It meant that was part of God's plan. Jonah, who we saw when we studied the book of Jonah, stunk as a preacher. He was a horrible prophet. When people got saved, he got mad. He went and sat himself under a broom tree and said, I cannot believe that these people got saved. Ugh! He was horrible. So it was God's plan that the people of Nineveh, would, and so those results occurred. It wasn't because Jonah was better than Noah. And so Haggai is telling the children of Israel, build, do what I've called you to do. Keep at it, stay at work. And then he goes on to say, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, what they heard and what I hear from just a simple reading of this, is that this house is going to be fancier than Solomon's house. But that's not how God chose to fulfill this prophecy. Now, he did shake the nations. In fact, Herod, taking money from Rome, who took a lot of money from the nations that God shook and didn't ask, Herod rebuilt the temple, and it was glorious. He actually put gold in the mortar so that when you stood at the Mount of Olives and looked at the temple, it glittered in the sun. It was beautiful. 
But that's not the fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy. The fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy happened when a young couple walked into this temple. This is the temple that Mary and Joseph would walk into with a little baby. On the eighth day after he was born. And the very Shekinah glory of God, when it had fallen on the former temple, was accessible only by one. It could be seen from outside the temple. All the people of Israel saw God's glory come and rest. But into the Holy of Holies could only go one person, and that person only once a year. Now, the peace of God, the glory of God, God Himself came into that temple as a little baby. And Anna recognized it. She saw, and she said, Ah, the peace of God's come amongst us. And so, this house is the house, the house that they were building, the house that they thought, according to their eyes, was a little thing, was the house that this baby would come into, the very God-man himself. So their labor, though it felt small in their own eyes, was very great indeed. And God would use it in a massive way. The final thing that we see in this little book is God's sovereignty at play. If you read in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 27, Jeremiah says, God was done with David's line. This is what he says. I, as I live, declares the Lord. Though Konia, the son of Konia, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. Now this had to throw the children of Israel into theological quandary. God had promised that David... On your throne will sit a king eternally. And yet here, because of disobedience, because of idolatry, because of placing one's hand in the face of God and saying, I'll do what I want to do. The words of Moses were fulfilled when Moses said, I set before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey God and a curse if you disobey God. And so here, the king of Judah said, like a signet ring on my hand, I rip it off and I throw it into Babylon. I'm done with you. I told you if you kept sinning, this would happen. I warned you before Josiah, and yet you continue to do what I've told you not to do. You drug false idols into the temple. You played with me. You've whored after other gods. You've done whatever you wanted to. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, I'm done. Now, how can God reconcile his promise to David and Solomon with this action that he took? How can he reconcile there will forever be a king on the throne of David with, like a ring on my finger, I've ripped it off and I've thrown it to the Babylonians. 
That question is answered at the end of the book of Haggai. Zerubbabel, who is in the line of David, is given this word from Haggai. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses, and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God, in his sovereignty and infinite wisdom, said to Zerubbabel, this son of David, I'm putting the ring back on because you've obeyed me and you've followed me. And Zerubbabel had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son whose name was Joseph. And from him was born a king. And that king will reign forever. So God was able to both keep his promise, I set before you a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey me, a curse if you disobey me, and the promise that there will be a king on the throne of David forever. The book of Haggai reconciles those two things. Now what this means for us today, sitting in Glencoe, Alabama, is this. We look at the way the world is turning and the way things are happening and nations rising against nation and this, these people over here or this politician over there or this thing over there and we, every, it seems like every doctor's office or restaurant I go into, you've got Fox News or CNN and people are wringing their hands. Rest in the fact that God knows what he's doing. We don't know what he's doing, and we're not asked to know what we're doing. What we're asked to do is obey him and be about the business of making disciples. God's going to do what he said he will do. We know how the story ends. We've got a whole book back here at the end called Revelation that tells us exactly how the story ends. And you know what? It's not going to end well for this world. And so when things are falling apart, we should go, well, that's exactly how God said it would be. That shouldn't shock us. That shouldn't be, we shouldn't be amazed by that. It shouldn't cause us to wag our heads. We should say, this world is not my home. And I shouldn't feel comfortable here. We are sojourners here. We're just passing through. We have a job while we're here. We have a task that we're to be about. With the rest of the stuff that goes on, so be it. As Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, he reminds them, and the city of Ephesus was a wicked, evil city. It was a horrible city. It was common in Ephesus for little girls that were born to families to be turned over to the temple of Diana for those little girls to be raised as prostitutes. That's all they would know their whole life. It was a wicked, evil city. And yet, Paul doesn't even mention that. What he mentions is, is who, this is who you are, Church of Ephesus. 
This is whose you are, church of Ephesus. Now act like it. Be the people of God that he's called you to be. Don't worry about what the world is doing. You worry about what you're doing. You worry about what's going on in your heart. You can't control the rest of the world. What you can control is what's going on in your heart. You can control how you act as an employee. You can control how you act as a husband. You can control how you act as a child. You need to focus on you and your heart and be my people. And I'm your God. And I will work out through human history and human experience the rest of the story. And if we truly have that attitude, this world is not my home, then the world can take nothing from us. Because we don't have anything here that we really hold tightly. Everything that where we're laying up treasure is in the bank of heaven. Where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. Where mold doesn't mess it up and termites don't get in and destroy. I uh, have a Jeep that I have had for 22 years, 23 years. And I learned... I've always loved my, my Jeep. In fact, I've never, when my kids, each child uses that as their first vehicle so they can drive to a job to earn money to get their own car. And whenever they say, well, I'm in my Jeep, I'm like, whose Jeep? <laughs> and it's gone through uh, my two girls, and it was just fine, and then it got to my son, and, and oh, dear Lord, boys are harder on vehicles than girls. And so uh, I went to go take um, one of... I don't even remember exactly what the original problem was, but I got in the Jeep, and I couldn't crank it, and he said, well, um, you've got to put it in neutral to crank it, because so, he had broken off the, the, the shifter uh, piece, and so I, I, I used his duct tape to get this thing cranked, and then I'm driving down the road, and it didn't have any brakes. It was like I push on the brakes, and they go to the floor, uh, and he'd never mentioned this to me, that th there was a, no problem. And when I finally did use the emergency brake to stop the Jeep, the front seat flies over in, uh, off the thing because he had taken the bolts out so he could put some stereo equipment in that he wanted. And, the, and I'm like, you're driving my, my baby daughter around in this vehicle and the seat's not even bolted down? So he lost his Jeep privileges. And he had to go, uh, he uh, first bought a vehicle from from uh, somebody here in the church, and he spent $600 on it, and you know what? It was a $600 car because he lost his Jeep privilege. So I started working on my Jeep. I was going to rebuild my Jeep, and as I started, have started doing body work, I'm finding rust all over that I never saw before. It was just a, a little bitty spot in the paint, and you sand it down, and you get it down there, and there's whole sections that are just rusted out. Because you know what? The stuff of this world is going to deteriorate. Everything that we see in this world is going to burn up one day. The only thing that you and I can deal with in this world that will last for eternity is the people we're around. That's it. So we see in the book of Haggai, as the prophet talks to Zerubbabel, that God, even though it seemed impossible... Even after God had ripped the king off like a signet ring and thrown it into Babylon, that God did exactly what he said he would do to David. God did exactly what he said he would do through the, Moses. And God, we can rest and know that what God has said he would do in this book, he will do.
Father God, Lord, I pray that you apply the teaching of the book of Haggai to our lives. Lord, we thank you for this little book. We thank you for all that it teaches us and it shows us. Lord, I pray that um, Lord, that we would quit fussing and rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.